Hi, everyone. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Today, we'll have an interview with Anton Clifford. He's the CEO of Moximed. They have been around for uh, a good time or a good long time for a startup, but they're working on something very cool, a very cool story uh, with a very interesting origin and uh, just a, 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 a lesson for, for startups about evolving and adapting and pivoting. So I think you'll enjoy the story by Anton Clifford. Super nice guy. Tells the story well. Before that, Chris Newmarker, Sean Hooley, and I will talk about Boston Scientific's recent Analyst Day meeting, which Sean reported on in Mass Device. We'll hit a few highlights, but uh, spend a lot of time talking about how China is presenting an opportunity or a challenge for medical devices. Before we get into the episode, though, I'd like to remind you that Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th. It's going to be a great couple of days. Please go to the agenda. We're making updates all the time, although they'll stop fairly soon, but uh, happy to have, uh, for example, Joe Mullings of the Mullings Group. He'll be moderating our uh, day two morning panel about surgical robotics, which will be looking at how surgical robotics is adapting to the evolving uh, uh, care centers. So uh, looking at new designs, new approaches, new takes on how surgical robotics will fit into the future of healthcare. So uh, please do join that. Uh, Distal, Motion, Distal Motion joins that conversation. So we'll have distal motion, vicarious surgical, and moon surgical all on one stage. Going to be a fantastic time. Because we love you so much and you're listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, we have created the code DTW25. Knocks 25% off the low, low price of $695. So you're paying just over 500 bucks for two great days of networking information, skill set building. It's going to be uh, fantastic. We're going to have a uh, an opening a networking session the night before, we'll have plenty of networking over the two days and uh, lots of uh, great interviews. Um, I have the good fortune of interviewing uh, four, making interviewing four great people, four great keynotes. I won't go on anymore. Go to devicetalks.com to check it out or west.devicetalks.com if you want to go right to the site and register, be there. And when you're there, you're going to see me say hi. I'd love to talk to you and meet you and hear your story as well. All right, let's uh, get this podcast started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, all right. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. We're we're obviously. I like how you just said that, like. Blah, blah, blah. That good. That good. <laughs> that's how I clear. This is that's the way. But the rain in my, that's my rain in Maine or the Spanish Maine or whatever the the tongue twister should be. So just a good. Blah, blah. We'll, yes. uh, we'll clear the tongue. Clear the. So I was just thinking alien when you did that. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> I hope like, I'm not frightening any children listening to this like, podcast. Like, Tom. Good. Daddy, what was that? Oh my gosh! What, was <laughs> what are that? you listening to? Anyway, anyway, welcome back, everybody, to the uh, to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Chris Newmarker, great to have you back on the it's podcast. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Always great to get the band back together, and we've got a, a third member, which I guess makes us like Rush, right? They have three members. I think Woo. Rush members. Sean Hooley on drums. Sean Hooley, associate editor of Mass Device, of course. Sean, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I appreciate. It. Isn't uh is Neil Pert Rush mm-hmm. drummer? Yep, that's, right. that's a win for me then. Oh, Pretty good. All right. Pretty yeah. good. Yep. He's actually very good. Uh so we will not be performing for uh for our podcast listeners and, no. and they can thank us later. We will be talking about uh your your four hour excursion into the land of Boston Scientific. You listened to Boston Scientific's was it their annual call or a quarterly investor call? Uh, what was the call? Is their investor day that they do every couple of years? They say so. Oh, every couple um, of years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They. Um. It was. I was not expecting them to open up by saying this will be a four four and a half hour event. And uh, I've dabbled in investor calls before, I think, but never never one for that length. So it was eye opening to say the least. But it was very informative throughout. They did a really great job of packing it full of interesting sort of nuggets about where their business is headed. Set the scene yeah. for Sean. So you were sitting, you're in your easy chair on Zoom. What, what, what was the setting like? Uh, whatever platform they used to broadcast it on their website, I was tuned in. 
at, at my desk in my apartment. That was that was it. Yeah, I was yeah. not present. Were you Although they coffee or did you, did <laughs> paint the picture I, for I, Sean? A couple a couple of coffees couple over four hours. <laughs> Was it, do you do do you do your coffee black or was it some yeah. pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks? Oh, oh, there's the black. first pumpkin reference of the season. I was wondering when it was going to come. We're talking today Always on black. the first day of fall, by the way. Happy it's fall, right. everybody. Happy <laughs> fall, everybody. So uh, very quickly, I, ever through COVID and after, I've just been impressed by the investor, uh, all the investor panels, or the companies that do their investor days on Zoom or whatever platform they're using. They really are. They can be done very well. And when they are. They're very informative and actually not at all boring. So um, we joke about the coffee, but uh, you can learn a lot sitting there. And it's 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 good for the companies to, to be able to put themselves out there. I watched Strikers, I think last year. Uh, it was very very high uh, high tech. I know Medtronic has been doing a great job since Chef Martha joined. Really uh, created great video products for their company. So just an aside. Um, but Electronics got that whole drum beat thing going on. Drum yeah, that, drum thing. Bio, that drum bio core thing, you know. Stole that good. for the it's opening good. of Medtronic Talks. I love that. Nice. Yep. We need a drum beat, Chris. Work on that, will you? You went to uh, the Ohio State. You must know how to play a drum. You know, you just I just said I was the drummer. I know, but you <laughs> he'll have the big drum, the big I, bass I was band. actually in the Marion Cadets in Marion, Ohio for a year or two, like in high school, but I played baritone. I wasn't a drummer. Baritone's a thing? A baritone horn, like oh, you know, like okay. yeah, I'm too, I'm too small. I couldn't really be a. I mean, the tuba was heavy. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a small guy. Like a tuba, tuba might have, might have been too much. So. <laughs> might have been fatal. But, yeah, uh, might have been fatal. <laughs> my son's at Purdue, and Purdue is uh, has the world's largest drum. I saw it. It's the world's largest drum. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Didn't help them in game. They're, they're two of their three games this year, but, uh, but hey. It's a big drum. So <laughs> Ohio State just dots the eye with the tuba player. So that's that's, that's their good, thing. Good to know. The the Ohio yes. The Ohio State yes. University. Uh, and Ohio State. The Ohio State. That's right. John, Boston Scientific. <laughs> yeah. Back to to actually yeah. what's important here. But, uh, <laughs> don't, don't get me going on Ohio State, man. <laughs> what is up? Boston Scientific is very optimistic, I would say. That was the takeaway. The theme that Mike Mahoney gave at the beginning was next level. And the whole idea was sort of, you know, what their strategy is geared towards in terms of category leadership, M&A, growth in certain areas. I know we'll get into that uh, using modern technologies, AI and digital, things like that. And just, yeah, it was altogether positive. There was... That I can think of nothing really negative that they, you know, had to address or talk about. I'm sure, you know, some people might have thoughts on that elsewhere, but everything they they were saying was on the up. And, you know, and the analysts, you know, are are reacting positively as well. And uh, I mean, it it definitely, you know, Boston Scientific definitely seems to be one of the success stories in the industry right now. And, um, you know, even though there have been, you know, some companies that have unfortunately had to have some layoffs earlier this year. I mean, Boston Scientific's hiring. I mean, they're, you know, they're, and they continue to grow. So the, the analyst note we got from BTIG was titled, Let the Good Times Roll. So that, that should <laughs> nice. pretty, pretty much there give you, you all you need to know about what they thought about the day. Trying to remember the band that did Let the Good Times Roll. I can hear it in my head. Let the good times roll. Oh, this is going to kill me. I'm sure there's some podcast <laughs> listeners saying, you morons. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, uh, let's. I mean, the, the news of the week was the relief and acquisition. So let's just delve a little bit into that. What was uh, what was said about that that very very large deal? It's the cars. It's the cars. Of course, Tom. I'm a Boston guy. Yes. Oh, come on, man. Self owned, Tom. And you're a Boston. Well, you're a Boston. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you weren't um, around when they were actually performing, so you'll get no. You'll get a pass. No, I'll take that. Yeah. So on on the relieving <laughs> front, uh, that was obviously the big news of. The early stages of this week, eight hundred fifty million dollar acquisition, um, and yeah, that that was definitely sort of a theme for Boston Scientific focus area. According to Mahoney, you know they were talking a lot about what Relieving brings to the company. Jim Cassidy, the president of Neuromodulation, said that it's a significant unmet need. The category of using radio frequency ablation to treat chronic lower back pain, and it's unique to Boston Scientific. So they expect a lot of growth from Relievant right away. You know, year over year, they're expecting 50% growth in 2024. And, you know, Cassidy was especially excited about the way it sort of complements the portfolio in terms of 
He said, look at our portfolio. We've got spinal cord stimulation, traditional radio frequency, vertiflex, relievant. He called it a co- compelling portfolio that's tough to match and sets the company apart in the space. So they're they're definitely uh, pumped about that. And an $850 million acquisition. Yeah. And just as a side, we'll have Rafael Cabanero. He is the chief technology officer for neuromodulation at Boston, at Boston Scientific. He'll be at Device Talks West. He'll be speaking about Boston Scientific's Parkinson's treatment, but certainly, Raphael, I'm sure we'll have some insights on the Relievant deal so folks who are at Device Talks West can uh, maybe get uh, get an inside story or two. So folks should certainly register at devicetalks.com. All right, moving on, Sean, what, uh, anything, well, Chris, anything else about Relievant? I mean, it, it obviously a company that's been around for a long time, has had some great success. Based in Minneapolis. Uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, Boston Scientific's Scientific. expanding around Minneapolis as well. Um, yeah, I know. You know. I know. I just had to rub that in a bit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, analysts were commenting too that this, uh, you know, this ex- expands, you know, Boston Scientific's neuromodulation business. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a really good, solid, complimentary, you know, acquisition. I mean, I mean at Device Talks Boston, we had Mike Mahoney, you know, that was a very upbeat, optimistic, you know, keynote as well, as well as like just some really, really fun stories that he had, you know, from his career. But I, you know, I, 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 I was struck in that talk earlier this year, you know, him talking about like really how he, you know, strategized with, you know, acquiring companies for mm-hmm. you know innovation and, you know, and, you know, how he, you know, it was good to swing for the fences sometimes, you know, and, you know, take some risks. And yeah, this just looks like a good, Another good example of, you know, Boston Scientific acquiring a company to further boost its offerings. Well, Boston Scientific, I think, has been one of the more acquisitive companies over the last couple of years. They seem to be making deals that really kind of move the needle, too. I think Relievan is one. Farapulse is another. Medtronic is making some great deals also. But uh, I don't know. M&A is always fun. It's great to see. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What else can we talk about, Sean? I know we're going to be, we're going to be yeah. focusing a little bit of our, our conversation later on on uh, Boston China. Boston Scientific's view on China, but uh, a couple other highlights from uh, from the call. One of the big takeaways was them talking about, and it's just it's been sort of a buzzword, obviously, over the last few years with AI and digital and sort of shifts in that space. Uh, something you often hear from these companies is how they're utilizing it, you know, in their actual devices or medical technology. But yeah. Boston Scientific talked about the way they use it on the business side, which stuck out to me in terms of creating a sales and marketing platform to help reach their customers and get down the right channels. And they called it omni-channel. It actually drove growth in a pilot platform for their PCI guidance technology. So already they're seeing positive results. And then they've also got an e-commerce platform and a suite of tools and technologies that they actually put out during COVID as, you know, a we need this to stay right. to to keep business moving during mm-hmm. COVID, and it's stuck around, you know, in the wake of the pandemic as they realized, oh, this actually this helps. So I think that's you know just it's nice to hear a slightly different side of the story about how they're using AI and you know benefiting them their, themselves on the business side of things. They're definitely doing a lot of creative things. Um, I mean, I you know I. I Going back to the Vice Talks Boston, I, mean, I remember Mahoney talking about them using AI, you know, in uh, in manufacturing and you know to to help you know with quality checks. So they're they seem to be doing a lot of creative things on that front. Mm-hmm. Anything else? There were some positive updates on some of the products from Boston Scientific. Obviously, Ferropulse was sort of seen as by analysts as the star of the day, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of goes back to the M and A conversation because they acquired Ferropulse a couple of years ago, and then the company had good study results that almost it seems like you know FDA clearance is a formality at this point, so everyone's expecting it to get cleared and they're expecting a big launch. So they had you know only positive things to say. About that, analysts were bullish on Ferropulse as well as the Watchman uh, left atrial appendage occlusion device. So a lot of or closure device. So a lot of good stuff on the product front as well. All right. So the the news that caught my eye. I mean, it's all great news. Great news about Ferropulse and Watchman and 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 uh, it, and just like you said, the general positivity about about the message. And I really I mentioned on LinkedIn. I really liked uh, liked. The, the quote you had from uh, from Mike Mahoney where he said, and I'm going to pull it up, that you, you wrote that he explained his aim is to make Boston Scientific a compelling and fantastic place to be 10 years from now. And I just kind of like that sort of forward-looking anticipation of let's let's make this a better place 
10 years from now than it is now. I just think that's a, a cool way to look at life. So uh, and it's something we should all be doing. But 10 years from now is a long time and things may be super great at Boston Scientific, but it's, I think it's what the next topic we want to talk about is China. And I'm getting there in kind of a roundabout way, but it seems to be a lot of uncertainty for medtech in in how to handle the the changes in china from the 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 cuts in in, in reimbursement to just the general global uncertainty so let's first talk about boston scientific and then maybe we can do a little round robin or a little round uh overview of medtech in general how is boston scientific uh viewing china yeah well mahoney called it one of the most attractive medtech markets out there saying unmatched growth scale innovation ecosystem they they see a lot of growth opportunity there but obviously as you said there's some question marks they highlighted payment reform local competition the, apparently china policy is pivoting towards local sourcing so jun chang the president of boston scientific in greater china said that the china playbook has changed and that's sort of you know how they're navigating things now but they're looking at exceeding 1 billion dollars in its china in the china business by 2024 delivering mid teens revenue growth and basically they want to harness upside while protecting downside that was their whole sort of game and chang said it's not an easy market to play but it's a compelling market and they're standing firm in their commitment mm-hmm. and they she you know boldly said we believe we are in a very, very strong position to win, and we have the best team on the ground to deliver that. So, you know, we may get into what other medtech companies are doing in China, but Boston Scientific obviously feels that it can sort of establish that ground there. Yeah, I mean, just just to put things in a little little context here, I mean, like in in general, right now, I mean, looks it looks as though there's some kind of you know major economic slowdown going on in China, and you know because uh, you know because China is an authoritarian government, we don't have you know, it's it's hard to tell exactly what the data is around that. So it's, it's there's a lot of questions circling around the Chinese econ- economy. And then for medtech, you kind of have to add on that at the same time, the Chinese government is engaging in some major es- efforts to control healthcare costs and mm-hmm. bring down the cost of health healthcare. These you know, like uh, what they call like these tenders reforms, and and you know, and and th- those affect medtech a lot. And then uh, and then just just to throw in one more curveball for the industry. There's also been a lot of, uh, you know, anti, you know, corruption ac- activity in China as, as well. And, you know, just, just, you know, uh, operating in China, there's all kinds of, you know, questions then of like, you know, whether, you know, you, you might, you know, somehow get caught up in that, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, so I mean, all that's going on right now, but, uh, you know, it, it it was interesting. Uh, like uh, our uh, our medical design outsourcing managing editor Jim Hamrand. I mean, he had a you know article in MDO. Like, it was kind of like looking at some of the industry's exposure, and he was uh, you know citing a William Blair report that was kind of saying that um, you know if if the uh, you know exposure was you know ten percent or you know if, they, if revenue was ten percent or less in China, that you know that the exposure seemed you know, manageable and, you know, just, you know, two companies that they mentioned in that report, you know, that had at least a decent amount of business in China, Medtronic, 7%, Intuitive, 6%. Um, at least those big companies, I mean, they're, I mean, kind of what, sounds like what Mahoney's saying is kind of reflecting what some other CEOs have saying, like, you know, uh, you know, Medtronic CEO, Jeff Martha, like said earlier this year, like, yeah, we're investing in China. It's a big market. It's growing. You know, it, it, like, despite all these questions around China, it almost just seems like you can't ignore a billion people. Yeah, it really depends on the company and the, and the type of product that they're making. Intuitive, obviously, surgical robotics company uh, is different than Boston Scientific or Medtronic. Uh, I did speak with Glenn Vavoso. He's the senior vice president and general manager and oversees APAC for Intuitive. I asked him about China, specifically with cuts in reimbursement, how in, how Intuitive still, and they have said that it's going to be a huge growth market for, their, for them. They're seeing a lot of adoption. And I was trying to... Uh, 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 figure out how Intuitive sees great growth there when many other companies seemed concerned about China and were sort of uh, minimizing the expectations for China. And he had said, I, th- I think just like any other country, China is no different. You've got to establish clinical value for hospital executives and for government officials. And uh, what he's also said that is that the, the change in reimbursement policy or in, in pricing really hasn't found its way to, to uh, robotics yet. So, uh, there's still a lot of opportunities for surgical robotics to, to find growth in uh, in China. Flip 
that I spoke with Kevin Lobo earlier this year for Striker Talks, and Striker famously is very under. They 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 haven't had a large China business, and and Striker's uh, analyst call from earlier this year, they made a point of of highlighting that fact that they didn't have much exposure there. And when I talked with Kevin Lobo, he just said it was more or less wasn't necessarily by design. They weren't avoiding China, but now that there's the uncertainty there, it doesn't seem to be a priority for them. Um, though they, you know, they have the Mako, and they certainly could make make a move there as well. So, lots yeah, of uh, f- lots of different ways to, to to look at China for these companies. Yeah, I mean the opposite. You, know, you take that all the way in the, that whole like, spectrum of reactions. I mean, you had Zimvi, which uh, was used to be uh, Zimmer Biomed Spine and Dental business that was, you know, spun out, you know, as an independent company. And, you know, earlier this year, I mean, they, they've been, they, they've, uh, you know, their uh, CEO, Vafa Jamali has been really like, you know, working hard on streamlining the business, you know, so they can, you know, like, you know, get, get to, you know, innovating more and growing. And earlier this year, they, they pulled the spine business out of China. I mean, it was just kind of that same reaction, like, you know, just too much uncertainty, you know, they're, they're trying to streamline, Mm-hmm. You know, this was one. This was just you know, you know, one extra thing that seemed like too much. And I, I did uh, from a different perspective, and it's, it's, I think Joe Mullings of the Mullings Group brings a talks to a lot of people. It's his job to talk to a lot of people, so I think he collects a lot of opinions and thoughts. And I had I had a sit down with him recently at his studio uh, in Delray. Uh, we recorded a lot of different pieces. We're, I'm putting them up on LinkedIn. The one that I posted this morning because we were going to have this conversation was the question I had asked him and Holly Scott of the Mulling Group, what, what do they think the big story of 2024 will be? And uh, Joe identified China. He, he thought that there's a lot of uncertainty there, that there's a lot of uh, medical device companies have a lot of questions as to where things are going to go, and there's and there's going to be a lot of turmoil from China, either on a manufacturing basis or, or market basement basis. So uh, I'll put a link to – well, folks can find that on LinkedIn. I posted that today. Uh, great conversation with with Joe Mullings on that. So there seems yeah, to really be really interesting. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of questions. But Sean, did did Boston Scientific? I mean, you you mentioned the the, the head of their business there, and I'm sorry, I, I forget. Uh, uh, I forget. June Chang. June Chang. Anything particular that they think gives them an edge in this space, or is it just the fact that they have those those feet in the ground and they're confident they have the team that that can execute? Well. I would say the latter is definitely the emphasis they had. They did mention percutaneous coronary interventions or PCI, which actually it's funny because they had the AI pilot for that as well. That seemed mm. to be going well, but they, they said that PCI procedure growth is a rising demand area in China. And that's something that they want to tap into. So they, they definitely see inroads there. Um, that, that's really the, the that's thing interesting. that comes straight to mind. Uh, from from their talk, but yeah, there there, there probably was more. It's uh, a lot to distill down over four and a half hours you in my brain if, right now. If the goal of China China's government is to control cost, then you know, getting health providers to do a lot more in the cath lab to treat different conditions would be uh would be a would be a good sell there. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what the uh, what the presence of ASCs are like there. I don't know where their growth is coming in terms of infrastructure. Um, yeah, but it's going to be uh, an interesting, interesting area to watch, both globally, <laughs> but also as it pertains to, to medical device companies. So it seems like basically, the, at least, at least right now, the U.S. medical device industry, I mean, the major companies, it doesn't seem like they're you know talking about you know pulling out of China at all. Like there's definitely this. It sounds like there's definitely this view that um, that this is a huge market. It's uh, it's been a growing country. You know, this this is where we got. You know, the industry you know needs to needs to be playing there. I was gonna say it might be worth over the next you know few quarters paying attention to those quarterly earnings reports and seeing what they're saying about how their business is either going up or down or staying yeah. the same in China. I think because that's something at least I'm I'll you know out myself here. I I definitely gloss over that when when we're doing the quarterly earnings reports. I you know look for other stuff above that, but that that might be something we pay attention to more. Yeah. I definitely think I'll be doing a control F uh, on for China on uh, on earnings transcripts in, in coming months. That's for sure. Well, Anton Clifford, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Really uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, as am I. I've been following uh, Moximed since its founding from afar. Not super close, so 
I have a lot to learn and excited to hear about your recent success. But first, let's hear Anton Clifford's story. How did you find your way into the medical device industry? Yeah, well, Tom, like I said, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Can't wait to tell you all about MoxyMed. It's it's a great story and it's a great time to uh, to get into it. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I started life, you know, I'm Irish, started life as a material scientist back in, uh, back in the University of Limerick in Ireland. Um, and at the time, was kind of unsure what I wanted to, to do with myself. I enjoyed the science and enjoyed the engineering. But I was really fortunate to connect with two professors at the University of Limerick, uh, Robert Hill and and Stuart Hampshire, and and they were really strong on biomedical devices, biomedical engineering materials around biomedical devices. And they sort of energized a passion within me that I didn't really know existed uh, in this space. And and so I went on to do my PhD with them in uh, glass ceramics for bone replacements. And then, you know, it was also a good time for me, again, good fortune that the ecosystem within Ireland was starting to grow. The med device ecosystem was starting to grow. So CR Bard, Boston Scientific, How Medica, Abbott had facilities there. I got really lucky to get a job with um, or my first job out of college with CR Bard as an R&D engineer there. And it was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. I learned so much and it ignited, I think, my career. It really did. And I got a real taste for it was, you know, stents were just getting going. CR Bard had a, had a stent called the XT stent for coronaries, but it was basically it was like jewelry design. It was a woven wire and laser cutting was starting to emerge and electropolishing. And I was really into that sort of that, that material side of things. And then, and then as I got more and more exposure, I, I got into the clinical side again with, with CR Bard and started to understand the impact you can have in the cath lab, uh, working with surgeons directly. And I got connected to uh, a gentleman called Paul Gilson, who had just co-founded MedNova with uh, John Ashoknessy and Chaz Taylor. Uh, and I jumped ship from CR Bard and joined MedNova and led their carotid stent uh, development. And that was just another phenomenal learning experience. Was this a device uh, Med company, MedNova? I'm not familiar yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, this, we're, we're going back in time now. This is late, late 90s. But yeah, it was it was a, one of the first medical device startups in Ireland. Like uh-huh. I said, co-founded by uh, John Ashoknessy, Paul and Chaz. And they developed embolic protection devices and carotid stents. And I led the carotid stent program. And so that was not just, you know, great engineering challenges, but it also opened my eyes to startups, to what equity means, and, <laughs> uh, uh, which, is, which is really, uh, really exciting, obviously. And, and uh, you know, the responsibility of designing a product that's going to be used in clinical, in the clinical setting sure. uh, and had complete ownership of it. And so that, again, sort of propelled my career forward, or at least my desire to stay in this space and to go further in this space. And uh, yeah, that, that was just a phenomenal experience. They ultimately got acquired by Abbott. Okay. And that's how I found my, myself moving to the US was through that Abbott relationship and, and, and joined um, Abbott Vascular just after they had acquired Pertlos. Okay. So then again, just, just landed into one of the most exciting environments I possibly could have found myself in because this was, you know, Abbott was embarking on creating a vascular franchise, which they didn't have at the time. And uh, Pertlos was its beachhead in the space. And so they had uh, licensed a stent technology from Biocompatibles, but they didn't really have a, a strong product line of their own. And, and I was brought in to sort of champion on the R&D side, all of their stent and catheter development. But I was hanging out with people like Bill Facto and Dave Van Meter um, <laughs> and Randall Von Open and, and just great people. And I don't was think- Was there any, hesitant, how... any hesitancy to move to the US or were you uh, also- Not just... by me, by my wife, was, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, not, not for me. Look, I, I think my motivation to come to the States was, was founded based on the two work experiences I had back in Ireland. So I was with C.R. Bard, a large corporation that had a facility in Ireland, but that was really a manufacturing facility with some sustaining engineering. But I understood, you know, every quarter the U.S. guys would fly in and we'd present to them what we were doing. And I always thought to myself, well, shouldn't I be on the other side of this (laughs) this equation? And then in MedNova, like I said, it was, if not the first, it was one of the first medtech startups in Ireland. And so I learned a lot and, and realized that well, that was the first in Ireland, it was, it was a pattern that was playing out pretty repeatedly in the U.S. So they were my two motivating factors to get a better understanding of, of corporate life in the U.S. and also to, to be part of this startup ecosystem 
that existed widely in, in the U.S. So that was my motivation. Lisa was not all that excited about coming to the U.S. So we agreed. We said we got engaged and then she agreed that uh, we'd get married, come to the States for two or three years and then, then head back. And here we are 22, 23 years later and 22 <laughs> years later. And yeah, there's no going back now, I think. That's great. That's great. I've only been to Ireland twice, both for medical device conferences, and these were probably 10 years ago, so 2012, 2013. And the energy and the enthusiasm around the sector was just fantastic. Those were some of my favorite events, just the amount of enthusiasm about startups and medical technologies. I would always go back. I never made it down to Galway and where all the medical device companies are, but attended a few of those in Dublin, and they were just a great experience. So what was it about the startup experience that that appeals to you. You mentioned the equity part, which of course is appealing, but there's a lot you have to do to get to that point. And it doesn't always play out as as I know you know. So what do you like about the startup process? For me, it's the responsibility. Uh, I just love the responsibility. You know, startups, you own it all. Uh, As I said, there's nowhere to hide in a startup. So the outcome of the startup is totally dependent on the people in the startup. And if you can carry that responsibility, you absolutely love it. And if you don't like that responsibility, it's not the place for you. And, and I always wanted more and more responsibility. So that, that was kind of what drove my move from CR Bard um, to Mednova. And then I wanted to just continue that. That for me is, is what's defining about startups. All the other stuff and, and the equity thing, yeah, that's rewards for the responsibility, not, not the motivation for it. <laughs> no, absolutely no. And I know where you're coming from. And you found your way to ExploraMed, which was a fascinating organization, is a fascinating organization in, in 2006. How did that come together? You, that was after five years at Abbott? Yeah, that, that's right. I was in Abbott and a buddy of mine, Bill Facto, had left and joined Josh. And at the time, it was a mystery as to what uh, they were working on. It later became a client, of course. Yep. But Bill said, you know, just that uh, Josh was somebody I absolutely had to meet um, based on his understanding of both of us, Josh and I. Um, so I met with Josh, actually met with Josh for a cup of coffee in a, an animal lab uh, facility. He was doing an, <laughs> an animal study. And, and between, between the, uh, the, the cases, uh, he, he popped out and we had a really good conversation. And it was kind of an instantaneous recognition of Josh can do wonders for me. And he, he's such a positive person. And I think he saw something in me that meant that, yeah, he wanted to work with me. I remember a couple of things about that conversation. At the time, McLaren was still under the radar. It hadn't actually disclosed what I was working on, but I had done my homework and, and found the uh, 510K letter on the FDA database. So I knew that it was in, in the area of sinuplasty. Um, so, so when I said that to him across the table, he was shocked. He was like, okay, who told you? I'm like, nobody told me. <laughs> so uh, it, it was great. Um, and, and then I spoke to Josh about my career because at the time, I wasn't, you know, I was doing really well with Abbott and, and Abbott was on, you know, a great run and it was a really dynamic environment and, and I loved Abbott. I learned a ton there. So I was still in this mode of what am I doing here? Because I'm experiencing the corporate growth that I wanted to experience. But then uh, it was like, oh, there's this entrepreneurial side of me. There's this, this desire to do something else. And I spoke to Josh. I was thinking about staying in Abbott and doing an MBA. And sort of taking, you know, steering my career away from the just the pure R and D or engineering side into more of a general management. And I asked Josh about that because he did an MBA, right? But then Josh has done pretty much every degree yeah. north of man, right? <laughs> so, so I asked Josh about about that. And, you know, he said if you want to hit a reset on your career, an MBA is great. But he said there's other ways to do it, and one of them is in ExploraMed. And I was like, okay, you got me. Wow, <laughs> it was just like that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was great. So another defining moment. So I've Tom, I've been really lucky. In my career, you know, going into CR Bard, then going into Mednova, into to Abbott Vascular, and then into ExploraMed, I've just been really fortunate in, in my career experiences. Let's talk about the MoxiMed experience. Was that an ExploraMed company? I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, no, Josh and I co-founded that. So, so okay. when I joined Josh in ExploraMed, I actually went into uh, a Clarent for a while and worked with Bill, and we set up some new projects there. One of them later became Tusker Medical, uh, another cool company, and then then I, I went back. Uh, to say, hey, I want to do one for myself. And so Josh and I partnered up. And the model is to just find unmet need. Um, you know, Josh, again, uh, sort of matches big aspirations, right? We wanted to do something big, uh, something that hasn't been done before. It, we weren't looking for a better mousetrap or a better widget, and, which is totally fine. We, we just took a different approach. But we looked in different spaces. And I just got really excited about osteoarthritis. Because what's cool about osteoarthritis is there's a strong mechanical component to it. But there's also a significant biological component to it. So it's, it's the, the marriage of two really uh, cool uh, challenges. And so 
that's what sort of led me to sort of focus there on osteoarthritis has been the problem I wanted to try and address. So yeah, let's talk about the, the process. The outcome was Misha, and we'll talk about the yep. product itself. Sort of a when I watched the video, it was very much as a shock absorber for your knee. It, it looks exactly like that. It's exactly right. So did you identify we want to do something in osteoarthritis? Let's identify the problem we want to solve and then identify the device to solve that problem. Or what does that process look like to come up with a product like Nisha, which is very new and very innovative? Yeah, look, the ExploraMed approach is the same as the biodesign approach. It's really focused on, on clinical unmet need. And, and again, given my background, and, and we, we said pretty early on that the disease said we wanted to solve a, a large disease, a big, a big problem. So you can look at prevalence of diseases. And, and then I wanted a mechanical component to it. So then we said, you know, mechanical components, typically there's a surgical solution that's available today for that disease state. But there's a big delta between the prevalence of the disease and the number of patients that elect the surgical solution. That tells you there's an issue. There's a problem to solve. And so that, that was kind of the approach we took. And, and that's where osteoarthritis popped up. It's massively prevalent disease, 32 million people in the US today suffering with osteoarthritis and, and knee specifically about 13 million people with knee osteoarthritis. And yet when you look at the solutions, the primary surgical solution is joint replacement. And that's growing, but it's about a million people that elect that procedure today. So there's a big gap between the number of the 13 million that have the problem and the 1 million that seek the gold standard surgical solution. So we said, okay, there's an opportunity here to do something different and to be better. So once we had identified that as the opportunity to try and dig into, then it's like, hey, let's understand the mechanism of the disease. What's actually going on? How does it start and how does it progress and over what time course? And what drives that progression of disease? Because once you can understand those things, then you can start to invent. The invention process should come after the understanding of the problem, not the other way around. We, I always say that internally. It's like, hey, before we start solving problems, let's understand problems. Sure. Um, and that's the exact approach we took. So when you look at osteoarthritis, it's a disease that typically starts, it often starts because of a traumatic event or an inflammatory event within the joint. So classic is tear your ACL when you're a kid playing high school soccer or high school football. You're a 30-year-old doing a pretty advanced downhill skiing and you tear your ACL. Uh, you damage your meniscus. These are things that trigger an acute mechanical event inside the joint that causes damage. And now the loads that are going through, the normal loads that are going through that joint propel ongoing wear and tear and damage in the knee. And that's how the disease becomes progressive. So there's a really strong mechanical component to the disease that we say, okay, if we can address some of the mechanics here, maybe we can address the symptomology and the disease. So just, so, just focus on this moment for a second, though. How much yeah. time does it take to really look at a disease like that? Are you going one or two years, like really diving deep into a disease, understanding uh, the impact, understanding the pain involved, understanding the mechanics before you even begin to come up with a solution and whatever that time frame is, maybe you could share, what is that process like? Because you could be, you may not find a solution. You're like analyzing this problem without knowing what the, the end goal is. It's got to be a bit kind of uh, a bit concerned. I don't know. It could get concerning over time, I imagine. We didn't just focus solely on, on osteoarthritis. We had other diseases we were looking at in parallel. Okay. So, so basically over, I think it was about a six month process that we use. And the objective really is to say, is to find reasons to not run a project, right? To, okay. to kill the project, right? That's yep. the objective. So, so you're learning very rapidly. You're attending conferences, talking to ex domain experts. You're just assessing the theories and the understanding of the, the disease state as quickly as you can to figure out a reason not to do it. Because if you can't figure out a reason not to do it, then you should do it. For us, there was an aha moment. I was at a conference in, in Miami. Again, it was one of these sort of learning experiences where, and it was a cadaver-based surgical course where there was presentation, didactic presentations, and then there was cadaver procedures being done. And the presentation, the title on the slide said, think stress reduction force over area. Uh, and this is about knee osteoarthritis. And I'm thinking, well, that's a classic engineering. Now I can get behind this one, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and then, then they went on to describe a procedure called an osteotomy, which involves cutting the tibial bone, realigning it, putting in a bone graft, putting on a plate, screwing it on. I was like, wow, yeah. simple little engineering equation turns into a massive surgical procedure with a really long rehab. I Interesting. thought, okay, there's something here. And so we came back and we started to really dig into this loading as the therapeutic target. And we see that weight loss studies, obesity studies, braces, 
um, osteotomies, they all have a correlation with pain relief or pain symptoms. It's like, okay, loading is the therapeutic target we're going after. Interesting. Uh, and that's a, me- that's a mechanical therapeutic target. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the process that happened. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. So when did you sort of settle on, on what Mish would be? And, and, and were there many iterations before this? I, I've, again, I've known about the company known what you were trying to do for some reason i just had a vision of like some little spongy thing you were sticking in the knee i had no sense it was like a a complete shock absorber so what did it start out as and it doesn't look much like what you had today and what the fda recently gave you approval for it started the principles started exactly as it is so in, in the very we did our very first implantation so we had the concept early 2007 we were in our first demand study within a year okay. um, in Australia, and, and the principles were the same. So when we said, hey, we want to do this, we're thinking, okay, who's the patient? The patient is a patient who's not satisfied or not electing joint replacement today. So they're typically too young or too early in their disease state for a joint replacement procedure, but they are, are suffering significant symptoms that is disabling for them. They're, mm-hmm. they're not living the life they want to live. So we're thinking, hey, these are 35 to 50-year-old patients. So for that patient, you want to preserve the knee for as long as possible, just give them their life back, right? So if we want to preserve the knee, let's stay outside of the knee. Let's not put something inside the joint because as soon as you start to put something inside the joint, you start to compromise the joint. So we said, okay, let's stay outside the joint. So how do we unload the, dev- the knee but not actually go inside the knee itself? And it was the concept was an implantable shock absorber. The form factor of the implant has changed dramatically since our first in-man study in 2008, but the principles are the same, which is phenomenal. We saw in the first in-man study, the day after surgery, these patients were up and walking. Josh and I did rounds with Dr. and and Kevin Saito, with Dr. David Hayes, who did the first procedures. And we we did rounds that morning. It was about seven o'clock in the morning. And the patients got out of the chair and walked over to us. It was phenomenal. And at two-week follow-up, we were starting to hear, anecdotally, they were telling us the pain relief, the pain that drove them to surgery, that OA, that deep knee OA pain was gone. Um, wow. And so we had this really strong therapeutic signal, like on, within two weeks of surgery. It was amazing. And then six weeks, 12 weeks, we kept following these patients. And so we got really excited really quickly. And uh, we used that data to take us to uh, CU Mark and, and uh, start developing the commercial pathway as we negotiated with FDA for a study design. And that's then when we really started learning town, right? That, that's where, to be frank, we got our ass kicked. Um, <laughs> so so as, as you broaden out from a nice tight control study, and there's some learnings in that, that initial study, don't get me wrong, it's, it's never perfect, but there's enough positive signal there to say, hey, we got this. But then you broaden it out, more surgeon users in Europe, more patients, and you start to hear market feedback. That's where we learned an awful lot. And we fought our way through it. Uh, we kept, we iterated the device with sort of small iterations to make the implant smaller and tweaked the surgical technique. But it was about 2016, 17, when we realized, hey, we need a pivot here. We're not getting the traction. We should. We see the benefit, but we're not getting lift off. And that was the time when I Kevin Saito, who was the CEO at the time and is still on the board and a great friend and mentor of mine, he said he didn't want to be the CEO of the, of the next phase of MoxyMed. So I stepped into the CEO role and, and pivoted the company to a different product platform, which is the Misha platform. And so I also reset the objectives of, of the organization. At that time, we had a sales force in, in Europe and we were still wrestling, arm wrestling with FDA for a study design. And we said as a, as a team, I got the team together and have a, have a phenomenal team here internally, got the team together and, and, and we discussed and we said, hey, look, there's only one thing we really need to do as an organization and to bring this product to the US market. That's mission number one. There's no point in mission number two until you achieve mission number one. And so we, we, we pivoted the company. We recognized, hey, we need a different product platform that turned into Misha. We designed a great study with the help of FDA. What does that process look like, though, that moment when you're doing that pivot? You have Kevin Saito, who, of course, was the CEO of Kfon, sold that. Kfon, so he yep. has had his success. He's, you know, understandably, you know, ready to, to move on to something else, hands it over to you. You're in charge of a company that has had, again, some success with the product, but you see the need for a pivot. How hard is it to keep the whole project together with investors and with others? I mean, there must have been, were, were there any, was anyone saying, maybe this just doesn't work, we need to move on. And if so, how do you how do you decide between that voice and the voice like, no, we have something here, we just need to make some significant 
changes? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. When it comes to how we manage the board through that, I just put all the all the options on the table. But the question you ask, you have to ask yourself is, is, is the hypothesis on which you started the company, that there's a large market opportunity, there's a large patient population in need, that there's no good solution for that patient population. Has anything fundamentally changed with that right. hypothesis? And over the course of between 2008 and 2015, in fact, 2008 and 2023, the answer was no. Nothing had changed in the world of orthopedics for these patients. So it's like, okay, that piece is solid, which is phenomenal, right? So, so now it's like, hey, is the approach fundamentally flawed? Is what you're trying to do just not working? Well, the answer there was no, too, because we also we had the positive data. We knew the device was giving benefit. Uh, so then it became a question of, OK, how, how do we then get the two to become more consistent? How do we get the product to provide the benefit in a consistent manner in a way that the market actually wants? And so we, we laid out a plan for that and what it would take, put that in front of the board with complete sort of transparency and honesty, say, hey, we're facing into designing a new study, redesigning the product taking it to FDA and navigating the, the gauntlet, running the gauntlet of getting a new implant design through in orthopedics through FDA. No easy feat, no easy task. But everybody around the table on a management team, we were all in. There, there was nobody balking at this. And we've got a phenomenal board, you know, obviously led by NEA, but everybody around the board is, is really strong. And, and without them, Moximed wouldn't, wouldn't be here today. That pivot absolutely needed the support of the board. But the board... When the board sees confidence in the management team, tended to stick back to backing the management team. So there was honesty around the table, uh, but there, I don't think there was a lot of doubt. Did you want to be a CEO? Was that your plan? It wasn't the plan. It wasn't an overt plan, uh, Tom. But like I said, I always want responsibility. I don't know. I just crave it. Um, <laughs> and the responsibility of being a CEO is, that's it. You carry all the responsibility. And actually, it's something I want, unless you're it's good. It's a healthy thing, but it's something I actually want. <laughs> what surprises you about being a CEO? What was something that uh, you didn't expect to feel or, or have concerns about that you did? That's a great question. Uh, what surprises me, I think, uh, it's two front, is the simple things are really important on the people front. They're really important. It's amazing what people can do when you get alignment and focus and energy I think that's what's really surprising me. What we achieve on a daily basis are, you know, we set ourselves goals and we hit every dang goal. It, it's, it's shocking. And I keep testing ourselves, pushing the goals a little bit harder and the team keep rallying to meet them. So it's amazing. And I love it. That's great. Well, let's talk about Misha today, where you're at. And, and if you could also just talk a little bit about what you did to transition it from what you had that was working, but needed some help, some tweaks to what you ultimately have now. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think we approached it when we said, hey, we're going to make a pivot. We didn't just approach it on the, on the device side. We all said, hey, overall, what are we trying to achieve here? Let's really understand our patient and define the patient. So we got clear definition on our patient and we separated ourselves from the joint replacement patients, right? The, the joint replacement is a great procedure when you're ready for joint replacement, when you're at end stage of, of your disease and you're ready to have your bones cut and, and replaced by metal and plastic. So, so we said, hey, let's separate from that. We're not trying to treat those patients. So let's not treat those patients. So we got clear definition around our patient population. We said, let's, let's just downsize the implant, make it smaller. And then on the surgical technique, when we looked at other orthopedic surgeries, uh, particularly around uh, joint replacement, which is you know, a million procedures done a year, there are key steps in the procedure that we said, okay, let's design our surgical technique around a similar surgical flow. So there's an incision with anatomical landmarks. There's a trialing phase. There's an implantation phase. There's a close. So, you know, when I started Maximed again with Josh, our surgical technique used a lot of fluoro guided visualization because we came from cardiovascular and, mm. and, and ENT and we were heavily using fluoro. Well, orthopedic surgeons don't use a lot of fluoro in surgery. They use direct visualization. So, so they're the kind of things we really tuned ourselves to the orthopedic market. And the other thing we did was we made all of our instrumentation disposable. So we're ready for an outpatient-based procedure, an ASC setting. So we did a lot. It, it, when we hit the reset, we hit the reset on every aspect of the product uh, so that, you know, we, we said, I, it's not just a small tweak here. We're actually, if I'm going to take the time, I'm going to do it right. And similarly on the study design, we designed a cracking study that was executed by Rose uh, Sabo-Einstein and, and Nancy Isaac and the team here. 
and we came out with superiority against osteotomy. Osteotomy is a really well understood procedure. It's been around for 30 years and we demonstrated superiority against it. So I'm really proud of the clinical data that we generated. And talk now, if you would, about the FDA approval. What were the trials like? What level I'm looking at the release now? I imagine it was a PMA, right? Or, uh, it, it was a de novo. Is it de novo? So, so it, Nova FDA, originally FDA had proposed it as a, as a PMA and we were working our way through that. But look, we are a device that involves no bunk cutting, no ligament harvesting. It's implanted just under the skin and with six bone screws, it's fixed to three on the femur and three on the tibia. It's a fully removable implant. It's essentially a reversible procedure. So in terms of risk profile, it's not a high risk device, Hmm. right? And if you look at the alternatives in orthopedics, they're predominantly class two devices. But we didn't argue that up front. We just said, okay, let's get the study started. Let's Mm. get some data generated. Let's establish the, the safety profile of the product. And then once we had some data, we engaged FDA in a discussion around the classification. And they got comfortable that we fit the de novo classification, which again, is just phenomenal. And so we uh, submitted under de novo end of June, early July in 2022 and ran a phenomenal process with FDA. We had in the course of nine months, I think we had over 150 interactions with FDA between meetings, emails, submissions. It was just a really positive and interactive process throughout the entire thing that led to our de novo granting on on April 10th of this year. So it was really good. Yeah. So what's the next step for uh, for Moximin? So we're we're now bringing the the product to market. So we've done our first commercial cases. We're uh, starting it. We've hired our first direct sales team. We've got four sales members right now, adding a fifth uh, next week, and we continue to grow that. So we're bringing the the product to market. Tom, you recognize that there is no other implantable shock absorber for the knee anywhere, right? We're doing something for the very first time. So we're, we're creating a new market here. And with that comes responsibility for education. We're focused on educating the surgeon community first before we really broaden out and, and educate our surgeons. So that's where we are. We're just starting that education. And we're leading out with some of the, the strongest thought leaders and academic centers in, in the U.S. So HSS, well-known orthopedics, UVA. OSU, OHSU, Scripps Clinic, Mayo Clinic. So we're starting with, with the top tier institutions who will be the foundation on which we will build going forward. And of course, we'll, we're adding some private centers as well because they bring a different experience. But the current phase we're now and probably for the next six to 12 months will be, a, again, a, a learning process for Moximed and a, a building of a strong foundation on which we, build, we, we carry the company forward. And how do you build the company going forward? What do you see this looking like? Are you a single product company, standalone? Do you see raising more money? Do you need require more capital? What what's on that side of things? What do you see happening in the next couple of years? Yes, certainly that there's a sufficient market here for us to be a single company and a very a single product company and a very very successful one. Again, we think our our total addressable market in the U.S. is about twenty five billion dollars, driven by three million people in the U.S that fit our indications for use today and 125,000 new diagnoses every year. So it's, it's a massive, massive opportunity. You know, some benchmark products, just to give you examples, Treese Medical is a, is a public company. It treats bunions, $1.5 billion market cap. Macy is, is a company that has got a couple of products in its portfolio, but the, the core is a cartilage implant, $150 million in revenue, $1.5 billion company. So these are really solid benchmarks in, in our space that says that we absolutely can be a single product company with the product we have and the patient population that we can treat and be a really big business. With that said, we've got a portfolio of IP that includes uh, lateral knee, uh, patellofemoral joint, ankle uh, joint. So the principles of which we founded and, and the IP that we've grabbed here of using load as the therapeutic target to treat osteoarthritis and the symptoms of osteoarthritis can be applied to any joint. Okay. Uh, and so we have the IP, but again, focus is our friend here, Tom. Uh, so we're right now we're focused on bringing Misha to the market and expanding its impact. And we expand its impact by expanding its prevalence of use. But it starts with the phase we're in right now, which is the education phase. The question you asked about financing, 
I'm a startup CEO, so I'm always financing. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, we will look at financing. But but right now, we're in good position to execute the phase that we're in. But I'm always talking to uh, the venture network uh, and the strategics about uh, potential further investments to, to drive the business. And I assume you're primarily selling to ASCs, or do you have business as well? It's 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 rather than uh, the facility setting, we, we really are targeted sports med surgeons. So the, the orthopedic surgeon community, uh, when it comes to knee surgery, it really falls into two primary groups, the, the arthroplasty surgeons that do joint replacement, and that's really all they do. And then the sports med surgeons that are very much more focused on joint preservation. So they're the surgeons that will do the, the ACL replacements and the meniscal repairs. And so we think most of our patients actually start in that, that sports med surgeon practice. And then ultimately, when they don't have any further options, they get sent over, referred over to the arthroplasty surgeon. So we're targeting the sports med community. And then if that sports med surgeon is in a hospital facility or, or a hospital outpatient or an ASC, we'll meet them there. But we're targeting the sports med surgeon first. All right. Well, it's a, a great story, both yours and, and Moximeds. And uh, I'm glad I finally got the chance to get all the details. Anton, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, that is a wrap, guys. Sean Hooley, where can folks find you on uh, social media? You can find me on LinkedIn, Sean, S-E-A-N, Hooley, W-H-O-O-L-E-Y. Fantastic. And uh, are you on X anymore? No, you never on X. Were you on? I, I, I was fleetingly on X, and uh, it's lately been a bit, a bit much, a bit much. I'm not, a, not for me. I'm, I am also XX. All right, Chris Newmarker. I know you're also XX, or at least you're not executing on your X. That was that's been that was a good band, XX. <laughs> <laughs> not in excess. You're thinking of something different. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, if you want to find me on social media, Chris Newmarker, like Newmarker, and my my big place to hang out is LinkedIn. Yeah, same here. LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, uh, S-A-L-E-M-I. Uh, and while you're there connecting with us on social media, we would love you to post uh, a copy of this uh, episode. And so you can share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And uh, what else do we want them to do, Chris Newmarker? you got to like, follow, subscribe. Absolutely. Like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you can get Device Talks Weekly. Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, Abbott Talks, all there. Lots of great med tech content to send directly to your your listening device, your phone, and or whatever. And uh, it's just a great way to remain informed. And you can also subscribe to Mass Devices Fast Five on their own podcast channel, which is, Sean, it's Fast Five, right? Mass Device Fast Five Fast Med device. Tech News Podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Absolutely. So we, 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 are, we, we can't do anything more to get the news and insights and analysis to you, to our, to our mass device fans and listeners. We've we're there. It'll be right on your phone. Like you can't do, you just have to push play, just push play and you're all set. You're informed. A universe of content opportunities. You're informed and may occasionally be entertained. If yes, <laughs> as funny as we think we are. And that hasn't yet been proven. Chris Newmarker. <laughs> Don't look so frightened, Chris. Chris Newmarker. Device Talks West is happening October 18th and 19th. Should, should That's right. Folks go to that, you think? Absolutely. I mean, the, the lineup there is just just fantastic. I yeah. mean, it's... I was absolutely uh, fishing for a compliment, and I and I reeled one in. Thanks, Chris. No, it is a great program. Uh, please go to devicetalks.com to register. What, you have a I mean, just literally, <laughs> there's some other <laughs> MedTech shows where you're like, who is talking at this thing? And our show, I mean, I, I'm really excited just that, just that I can see like, you know, top executives, top engineers, R&D people at major companies, you know, speaking at this event. I mean, that's just, I mean, if, 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 if you want to, you know, rub elbows and network and, you know, talk to the people who are like making things happen in this industry. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I am literally, I'm excited about this event. It's going to uh -huh. be a, it's going to be awesome. I agree. If you were to stand in the middle of the Santa Clara Convention Center and swing a cat, you'd probably hit a chief technology officer. I wouldn't recommend doing yeah. that. It's not the best yeah, way to meet people. Don't but... hit a chief technology officer with a cat. <laughs> but they'll be there. Or a VP of R&D. You'll hit one of the two. But they won't like it. But that's yeah. how many will be there. It'll it be... might be fun to see if the cat lands on all four feet. But, I mean, you know, you don't want them to. <laughs> 
Don't bring your cat. No pets to the Toy Stocks West, please. But do register. Do come. Oh, my cat wants to go. My cat. If your cat can pay, there's a special cat. (laughs) Your cat wants to register, Chris. By all means, bring your cat. Uh, devicetalks.com or west.devicetalks.com but we'd love to see you there and because you're listening to this ridiculous nonsense we want yes. to save money <laughs> use the code DTW25 and you'll save 25% off the price which is only six ninety five. so it comes to like $529 or something which for a two day conference with lots of great medtech people it is as we say in the Boston area a bargain. So we hope we'll see you there at uh, the Santa Clara Convention Center on October 18th and 19th. Oh, all right, well, Chris, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. What's what's the, the what's the, uh, the the special day today? You you highlighted it a little earlier. It's the first day of fall, correct? We're talking on the first day of fall or awesome. Yeah. Yes. So so hey everybody, thanks a lot. Enjoy the fall. Yeah.